All right. Good morning, everyone. Yeah. We're gonna be like, good morning. We're from Mexico. We'd like to get started. We're five minutes ahead of schedule. I know Joe's going to come after me for that. Um, just uh, this is the, uh, if you haven't found out, this is the Little Hands and Life Song presentations. Um, also, another reminder, the Glencoe Outreach is in Campus Center 105 at uh, 3 p.m. Um, let's start uh, this, uh, this, this forum off with, with a prayer. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful here to be at uh, Eastern Camp safely. Um, we're also mindful of those that are still striving the camp, especially uh, Brother De- Dennis and Sister Yesna. Um, please uh, keep them and everyone else uh, uh, safe um, uh, on their travels. Lord, as we um, enter this presentation and also throughout the rest of the week, that you would open up our hearts and, and ears, that we would uh, um, be receptive to the messages um, that you would uh, bring to us, and that we would be able to take them to heart and ponder on them throughout the rest of the year. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're we're going to start this uh, morning off with uh, the Little Hands presentation. I'm going to hand it off to Glenn and Amara. Okay, so hello. Uh, we are Glenn and Amara, originally from Kitchener, Strasbourg Road, Ontario, and we have been living in Takati, Mexico for around the past year and a half. Um, we are very nervous, but we're super excited that you guys all came and showed interest in the missions that we're going to be presenting today. So we'll open it up with just some statistics. So um, since opening in 2014, Little Hands has housed over 80 children. Um, over 50% of those children don't have fathers listed on their birth certificates. 70% of the children have a mom that is under 25, single, and a drug abuser. 20% of kids have had a relative visit, and only 13% of kids have had a mother visit them at the orphanage. So how the Little Hands Orphanage and set up and kind of what we are and how we work, we are a group of three foster homes in the town of Takati in Mexico. There are three houses on the property that each have primary caregivers and their primary children. So just like the foster systems in Canada and the United States, we have these kids with us 24-7, day and night. We are their parents while they are with us at the Little Hands Orphanage. We have a boys' house, a girls' house, and the third house is a relief care house that relieves all the caregivers once a week so that every caregiver can take their break. (coughs) We wanted to tell the testimony and the story of a little boy that is currently still at Little Hands Orphanage. He is 12 years old, and he has been with us since he was five. He was one of the first kids that the orphanage received when it opened in 2014. Juan, when he first came, had extreme anger issues, was very aggressive and violent towards himself and the other children. He had severe behavioral issues. He came from a background of a lot of trauma, just like all of these kids do. He arrived with his half-sister, who was later adopted by the sister's biological father, but Juan could not be adopted as he was not biologically related, and they were separated. His mother is deceased. His father does not want him. He will probably never be adopted, as he is already 12 years old, so he's kind of aged out of that prime adoption age. But that being said, we are so blessed to have seen this boy transform from what he was. He is a completely different child 
than when he first came. He's the oldest kid at the orphanage by five years to the next oldest kid. He is the big brother to all the children. He cares for them. He helps us caregivers so much. He memorizes scripture. He has every answer in Sunday school. In the church Bible classes, he's the little 12-year-old that's piping up with all the answers when us adults don't know. And he just graduated school with top grades. So he has completely transformed in the majority of his life that he has spent at the orphanage. And we are just so proud of where he's come. And he is starting high school this coming year. And as we all know, that's kind of a dangerous age to be entering. So we ask that if you could keep him in your prayers as he enters into this next phase in life. And that us caregivers can continue to work with him. We also wanted to tell two testimonies of kids that we have had at the orphanage. So we would like to tell the testimony of Jordi first. Jordi was five years old when he came to the Little Hands Orphanage with his little brother, who was eight months. He came from the hospital beaten and bruised. He mentioned to his caregivers that he had had a little sister who had died. They later saw in the news that it was true. Jordi had a three-year-old sister who was beaten to death by their father, and Jordi watched it happen. He was later beaten himself to the point where he was hospitalized for weeks, and after that, we received him. Now, after all that trauma, when they received this little boy, he was the sweetest, most grateful little boy you will ever meet. He genuinely asked everyone at the age of five how their day was, how they were feeling. He was grateful for everything because he had nothing. The male caregiver, that was his primary caregiver at the time, Jordi would tell him that he was such a good dad because he didn't beat him. That was his standard. That was Jordi's standard for a good dad, that they didn't beat him. While he was there at the orphanage, he often was saying that he missed his sister, and it was so hard to explain to him that his sister was gone and was never coming back. Thankfully, him and his brother were adopted by an aunt and uncle, and we do have contact with them, and they are both doing very, very well. So another little boy we'd like to talk about is Santiago. So he came to Little Hands at around a year old, And the first month he was there, he behaved like a normal one-year-old would, for the most part. Um, But then shortly after he he arrived, he started waking up every single night in the middle of the night just screaming. And he would wake up with scratches all over his face and all over his bodies in places that his hands couldn't even reach. So the caregivers would try, they tried everything at the time. They tried putting gloves on him at night so that he wouldn't scratch himself. But the next morning, he would wake up with the gloves still on his hands, but there were fresh scratches on his body. So what they did is that they, they started praying over him every night, just focusing on the importance of Jesus' presence in that, with that child. And shortly, two days after, the scratches stopped, and he stopped waking up in the middle of the night, and it never came back. So he was adopted... Um, a little bit after that, and the adoptive parents, they reached out one day, and they brought up that before every single meal, he would say a prayer. He was only about a year and a half, two years old at the time. 
So even though they were self-proclaimed non-believers, they, they decided that if this, if this child that they adopted was going to pray before every meal, that they would pray with him. So that was just a really, it's a really amazing example of how even at such a young age, sometimes when we get these kids like, like newborns, year old, two year old, you don't really know that that impact that we make on them of showing Jesus love to them will stay with them. But this is just an example that it does. So even this one and a half, two year old was praying before every meal and started showing their new parents that that this is like, this is real, you know, Jesus is real, like we should thank him for everything, every meal. So, um, so other than that, like those are just a few, a few examples, specific examples, but we have received, like it said earlier, over 80 children, each of them with their own unique, um, unique stories, unique backgrounds, unique, um, just difficulties that they had to deal with. We had children come with cigarette burns all over their body. We had children so scared of adults that they would hide under tables during meals because they were too afraid of social interaction that they wouldn't want to eat with other people. Um, We had a six-month-old baby girl who was found in a dumpster. We had a three-year-old who lived on the streets, and they found him wandering on train tracks by himself. And, yeah, so a lot of these children just come from really, really broken homes, and what we do is we just show them the love of God, the love of Jesus as best we can, and we just pray that that sticks with them as they, as they move on in their lives. So just some prayer requests for, for us and for our mission. So we just pray for safe Christian homes for the children when they do leave us at the orphanage. We pray that the children would find the Lord and that they would be able to plant the seed with their new families, just as Santiago did. Uh, We pray for strength and patience for the caregivers, ourselves, to raise and provide for these children, because it is very difficult. It is a, it's, speaking from experience, it's a very difficult job to do. It's, it's not just like raising a regular child, you're raising multiple very traumatized children, and it is, it, it it is a, a very difficult job. And also for the physical needs of the orphanage would just be, continue to be provided for. Are there any questions, comments? This is the time for that. How frequent are work teams coming out to Takati, and are there any future opportunities? So how frequent are work teams coming out to Takati, and are there any future opportunities? We get big work teams for um, things such as helping around the orphanage property, helping with the local Takati church. We get those about twice a year, and that is an amazing opportunity. The kids adore the work teams. They love having people they get to show around and show them their lives there. And I believe there's an upcoming work team that is going to be working on the church and the orphanage in October. So... Yes, so we receive the kids through what would be the social, social services here in the Canada and the U.S. It's called the DEEF, and it's the same concept. So they go to get the children from their homes, their broken homes, their, if they find kids on the street. They will go get them. They will keep them in these huge facilities where there are hundreds and hundreds of kids and only one caregiver per 100 children. So those facilities in between their broken homes and us orphanages are horrible places, but that's just what 
the government can support. Um, and so the children stay at those facilities until their paperwork is done, and then a social worker brings those children to us, the orphanages. Yeah, so... Oh. I don't know if I can speak to this a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I'll just, we'll just repeat the question. Okay, so the question was, was there a language barrier and how do we deal with that? So a year and a half ago when me and Amara moved out there, we spoke absolutely no Spanish. We knew maybe like a few words like hello and thank you, but other than that, nothing. So it was a little bit of a challenge, a struggle at first. Um, it took it took around maybe six months for us to be able to have a conversation without using our phone to just Google Translate everything. Um, but since then, we have grown a, uh, a lot in our in our in our Spanish language. <laughs> so we are able to have conversations with people like pretty well. Amar's a little bit better than I am, but <laughs> I just talk more than he does. <laughs> uh, it was definitely difficult, especially because these children, you're raising them in Spanish. And so Glenn and I don't have biological children. So for us, Spanish is our parenting language, if you will. So thank God, he, God bridged that gap very, very quickly. Um, it helps so much that we were immersed in the culture. I think that's the best way to learn a language. Um, and yeah, a year and a half in, we can confidently speak Spanish. We have the grammar of a child, but we can get our point across very easily. <laughs> Some of the first phrases we learned were, stop and be careful. Yes. <laughs> so do we have any training or resources to help us with the trauma that the kids go through? So yes, we do. The ACCNBC, who we went through as Canadians, we went through a process where we had to do online classes, modules. We had to um, do a pretty, pretty intensive, um, what would you call that? Like checking through, if you will. So Glenn and I, as individuals, we were analyzed to see if we would be good for the mission field and if we would fit the job. And then once that was cleared, we went through classes on trauma, on behavior. We also went through cultural classes, which were super helpful as Mexico is completely different than Canada and the U.S. It's on the same continent, but it's so, so different. So yes, thankfully we did get training through the mission board. And that and has been a huge help. And on top of that, we went, we went for like a two-week... This keeps turning off. I think it's a little battery. Um, so on top of that, we, um, we had a, a two-week visiting time that we just kind of saw if, if this mission would be fit for Amar and I to go together, and it was, obviously, so, <laughs> so we, came, we went back, so. So we currently have 10 children. We do have capacity for more. We are waiting for, we have a lot of room for girls right now. The girls' house right now has a lot of, a lot of space. Um, there's a few kinds of things that factor into that. One is that it takes the social workers a long time to get through all the kids' paperwork. Just like here in Canada, or here in the States and in Canada, the foster system has too many children and not enough workers. And so the social workers are so backed up, and until their paperwork is done, we don't even get the option to receive them. And so that's why right now we currently have space for more kids. When the children's paperwork is done... They reach out to us. They say, this is the child that we have. This is their age. And if they have any information on any specific trauma they've been through, they can provide that. 
And then we as the caregivers, based on the capacity that we have, how many volunteers or how many workers are working there, we get to choose the children. We very rarely say no to kids unless it is absolutely we can't do it because at the end of the day, our mission is quality over quantity. We could take a million children, but then at the end of the day, we, they would not be getting the same quality of care. So we try to keep it to our abilities and so that is kind of how it works. And keeping the, keeping the numbers the way they are, that also helps to avoid burnout. Because in, in, in missions, it's very common. Burnout is a very common issue. And there's, there's, we're trying to fight high turnover rates for uh, just caregivers. And to avoid that, we try to keep the, the workload to a point where we can handle and not overextend to have more kids and then, yeah, lose quality and then also burn ourselves out at like much higher rate. So the adoption process, I'm not exactly sure how it goes through Canada and the United States. I do know it is very expensive here. The government, the social workers, first look for family members. And I believe it is very, very cheap for the paperwork for a family member to receive a kid. So that's an aunt, uncle, grandparent, um, cousin, they try to look for family members first. Now, local adoption in Mexico, I believe, is a reasonable price because Mexico prefers their children to be adopted by Mexicans. International adoption, when we last looked into it for Canadians, it is between twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars. So, I'm not sure about America. But, but from a Canadian perspective, public adoptions are free. Oh, in Canadian perspective, public adoptions are free. If you were a foster parent. Same in the U.S. Same in the U.S. Okay, there you go. And we as foster parents and caregivers cannot adopt any children while we are working at the orphanage. Yes, we are just how you would need to be assessed and cleared to become a foster parent here in the States or in Canada. We had to do the exact same thing. So we had to go for a medical testing. We had to meet with psychologists. We had months' worth of interviews and stuff like that. And then now that we have our certification, we are good to go. Yeah, so we've never had to deal with that situation. So right now, our, the process would be, yeah, we would keep him until he's 18, and then he can, he can go out on his own, you know, start living his own life. Or I feel like we would, we would give him an option to also become a caregiver if he is also cleared by the government himself to work at the orphanage and continue living there. Being such a, a young and generally new mission, we have not dealt with that yet. But with Juan, that will come into play eventually. So there are six caregivers right now. There is one caregiver in the girls' house. We are in charge of the relief care house. And there are three caregivers in the boys' house. The boys' house with the three caregivers has seven kids. And Leah's house, the girl caregiver, she has one kid. She's the one who we're waiting for the government to give us more girls. We have two kids, and then four days a week, we take care of all of the orphanage kids so that the other caregivers can get a break to avoid burnout, and then we get a break. 
And you can donate through the ACC NBC and ACCF websites. And I'm pretty sure there are also slips here this week that you can donate to. We can kind of give an estimate on that, but that is not really our territory. As caregivers, we are super blessed to have committees and things that kind of run that for us. But um, Jonathan, I'm not sure if you would know that, <laughs> not to put you on the spot. Okay. So with wage, utilities, food, all of it is around 7000 a month. Thank you. Well, it started with Amara, but for, for myself, I, I, had always, I had always liked uh, the idea of missions. I always, whenever there was missionary presentations, I was always very taken by them. I always felt very inspired by them. Um, but I, I never thought I myself would be the one to go. Um, but I'll, I'll let you continue from there. But. <laughs> so in 2019, I had the awesome opportunity to move there on my own for three months. And so I kind before of, we were married. Before we were married, <laughs> I moved there on my own for three months' time, and I ran the girls' house. And then I moved back to Canada, and we got married. And we had this grand life plan, just like everyone does our five-year plan, and that completely crumbled. It completely crumbled, and we were devastated, and we're like, "What are we going to do now?" And God told us that you're going to go to Takati. And so we talked to Willie Ritzman, the head of the ACCNBC, and we're just like, okay, we're going to see if there's even a need for it. There's always a need. (laughs) And so that's when we started the process to become missionaries. That was about six months into our marriage. And then about a year later, we moved. Yeah, so... I was heading into nursing school, or that was what we had thought, and because of a complete fluke, a fine print thing that nobody told us, I was told on the first day of school that I wasn't going to be able to continue in the program because of some prerequisites that, that, I, that I had. And so for, for us, that was what we had planned the next five years around, that was devastating. We just didn't know what to do. It was just this hopeless. And I remember sitting in my apartment and just asking the Lord, like, why? We don't understand what we're going to do next. And I think last night, Josh Pitakaru said, like, if you listen, that still small voice is there. And that's exactly what it was. It was just the still voice that said, you're going to go to Mexico. So she brought that up to me. And obviously I was a little taken aback. I was like, well, this, this, isn't, what we, this isn't what we had planned. And then, um, and then, yeah, so we talked about it. We prayed about it. We, we, yeah, we looked into it to see if it was even a possibility for us to go there. And, of course, they were like, oh, like, we've been praying for a young couple to move out there. And we're like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, just everything, you know, all the doors were just opened. And it just, it, it was almost like the path was made out for us. And we just, you know, followed that path. And it led us here. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, in the event, uh, in the scenario of being here, uh, often, uh, often uh, just turning over the person outside world would pretty much could uh, result in undoing everything you've done for their lives. So do you guys get yourself integrated with uh, local evangelical churches so that uh, 
Yeah. So inter- okay. Yeah. So the question was for in the event of someone being 18 and kind of aging out of the orphanage, like, is there a way to help them go into the st- in like on their way? Like, is there a local church or something that we are connected to? So yes, we do have an ACC church in Takati. So there's an ACC run church, and um, he, the the boy Juan, he attends, and like we said, he he loves church. He goes all the time. He well, he goes all he has to go all the time. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, but he he really enjoys it. He he has already told us that he he wants to become a Christian. You know, like he wants to follow God. It's it's his dream. And um, so we do have that. And and if that event comes, I am sure that people of the church, members of the church, us as the orphanage, we will do everything that we can to help him on his way in becoming his own his and own person. he would never be turned away. He would be given the option to work with us, and if he did not want to go that route, we would keep him until he found a place to live within reasonable time, and we would help him out. Um, Mexico is a very relational country, and Takati is a very small town, <laughs> so everybody knows everybody. <laughs> so that, that is something that, thankfully, we do not have to be concerned about. Yes, we are. Um, We are always super excited when people want to volunteer and visit. So relief caregiving is when somebody wants to come and they specifically request to come for relief caregiving. That means that they will take over a house and the children that are in that house so that the caregivers of that house can have a break. Relief caregiving and any volunteer or work team needs to go through the mission boards. We have Josiah here who's in charge of the ACCMBC side of it. And so if you communicate with your member of the mission board, they will communicate with us and we will figure out dates for that. And that is a huge help to the orphanage as one of the biggest dangers that we face is burnout. We have time for maybe two or three more. To do the missions in our job or to come volunteer? To volunteer, volunteer, I believe that you are generally expected to be in the later teens unless you are coming with a parent or a guardian. But also, we really want people to know that it is not a vacation. If you are coming to help us, you are coming to work. We are already raising children. We do not need more people to take care of. (laughs) And so (laughs) that being said, we don't like to put an age limit on it, but it is expected that if a younger person wants to come, that they know what they're getting in for, and especially if a teenager wants to come, that their parents can also assess for our sake if their child's a good fit for the mission. Just to kind of add on to that, um, we do have a, uh, a family that's coming to Little Hands later this year, and it's, it's you know, a father, mother, and I think three children. Three yeah. I, I don't remember the youngest is maybe five or six. Five or six. Five. Mm-hmm. So, like, all ages are, are, are welcome. Um, if they're traveling by themselves, um, depending, there's probably different regulations in, in the U.S. than, than in, in Canada. Um, I, there's a, I think there's a 15 or 16. I think they have to have a, a guardian that's 18 or older. But again, it's a pretty pretty open spectrum in terms of uh, um, who can come and, and their their abilities. Mm-hmm. All right, I think we have time for one more question. Yes. What do you hear a lot in the news about dangerous places 
So our area of Mexico is directly on the border. We have a, we live on a mountain, and if you climb to the top of that mountain, you can see Trump's wall. So we are as close to the states as you can be. Yes. Um, so if you go if you go further down into like further into Mexico, that's kind of where the more dangerous spots generally are. But our our city, our town of Tecate, it's it's one of the one of the safer ones. We've never had to ever deal with any kind of safety issues with that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same as, honestly, how big cities are getting in the United States and Canada. You just use your common sense. Don't go places that other people aren't going. And if you're unsure about something, ask a local. So for us, we've never felt any danger. We've never personally had any problems in our section. And so that's been a huge, huge blessing for us. Yeah, thanks for all the questions. And uh, we'll turn it now over to Ashley. And is this, oh, it is on. I've never used one of these before, so. I feel like everyone who uses these always hits it somehow, so I'm going to try to not, like. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank everyone for coming. Um, as Willie already kind of shared, so I am not Dennis, <laughs> and uh, it's supposed to be Dennis here, but unfortunately, in Delic fashion, he is late. And so... <laughs> Uh, no, so um, their flight got canceled yesterday, and the soonest they could get here is like midnight tonight. So um, I, I've never presented on this mission before. Um, I have been a couple of times. I've spent a couple months in Zambia, um, but this is my first go at it, so uh, bear with me. Um, but I'm happy to talk about the work God is doing in Zambia. So we're going to start off. Let's see. Hopefully I do this right. We've got a little video to play, so I'm not sure if the sound is going to work here. Oh. Is there something I'm supposed to do here? It's not uh, when I'm hitting this. It's not. Oh, oh there we go. Why is it? If can challenges okay. and often live in poverty with little hope to break the cycle. At Life Song Zambia, we see the children as the future leaders of Zambia with Jesus at the center of their lives. Through holistic gospel-centered care, quality education, and tangible job skills, we can break the cycle of poverty and create a brighter future for these kids. Today we serve over 1,300 children between two schools. Our primary focus is to help them know Jesus, and our schools are academically among the top in the region. Through safe homes and discipleship programs for high school students, we enable these kids to continue their education, paving the path for many to become the first graduates in their families. As children transition into adulthood, we continue to work alongside them. We provide college scholarships and vocational training. Through Life Songs Farms and Sustainable Businesses, we employ graduates and orphan caregivers with living wage jobs and generate funds to support the ministry. Together, we can transform lives and bring joy and purpose to orphaned and vulnerable children in Zambia. Oh, uh-oh, there we go. Okay, so just a little overview of... Um, 
our, our mission in the work that we do is that we have um, a four-part pledge, um, and it's kind of like our commitment to the kids that we serve. And so this involves um, teaching them about the gospel and how to be a follower of Christ. This is at the forefront of everything we do. Um, obviously, we know you can provide shelter, you can provide education, but if you don't teach them about God, in the end, it kind of does nothing. Um, so a lot of these kids, um, they really struggle with food insecurity, not having their basic needs met, so we want to provide food, clothing, medical care, or shelter where it's needed. Um, obviously provide that quality education that is um, very lacking in most third world countries, including Zambia. Um, and then have access to continued love and support as they transition into adult living. So we don't just want to provide for them in these younger years, but also equip them so that they can be successful in their adult life. So here's some statistics of the mission in Zambia. Um, so there are two schools, well, four schools, actually now. Um, and most people are familiar with the Harmony School. That's what ACCNBC first got involved with. Um, and so that's in Kitway. And now about half an hour away, there's another school called the Garneton School, and that's run by Lifesong U.S., um, and so that started in 2007. So that's been going on a couple years longer than the Harmony School. Um, and recently, um, there's been a merge in kind of the directions of the school and the leadership. And so now Dennis is not only the director of the Harmony School, but also the Garneton School. And from that, we've also created the Gap Year Center and the Trade Academy. And I'll go into that um, in more detail. So all together in all of those four schools, we are serving 1,300 children. Um, we have 370 national staff. We're running five sustainable businesses. We have 21 boarding homes that are providing safe housing to students. And we've got about 160 jobs that have been created through the, the sustainable businesses. So just some, some statistics about the, the area that we're working in and the people we serve. So really high rates of unemployment in the local community. Less than 50% of students who start grade one will actually finish high school. So graduating is a huge, huge, huge milestone. Um, and then 60% of girls won't finish school due to pregnancy. And we do experience that in um, Har Harmony and Garneton School. Unfortunately, female students, um, grade 7, 8, 9, 10, um, they will get pregnant and unfortunately drop out of school. So this is kind of, if we boil it down, our mission, discipling future leaders through biblical truth and education excellence. So we're really striving to provide that quality education and provide that biblical truth. And so education is one way that we're reaching kids with the gospel and helping them break that cycle of poverty. And so again, just four schools that we've got, 1,300 students, and that's from JK to grade 12. We just had our first graduating class this past year. Um, and we've got approximately 27 teachers at the Garneton School and 51 at Harmony. And all of these teachers are local Zambian staff who are professing Christians, and they are accredited. They've all gone to college or university. So again, just discipleship is really important. Um, and so there are lots of different opportunities to teach the gospel. Not only is the curriculum that we use always kind of centered around God because each teacher is a Christian, and so you're incorporating that into the lessons. Um, but there's also daily devotions for the various age group. We've got two local pastors that work at the school and also pastor local congregations in the compound where these children live so that they can also go to school go to church on Sundays with pastors that they are familiar with and worship in their own cultural language. So just a little statistic. 
Um, 12,500 meals served per week. Um, we serve breakfast and lunch five days a week at both schools. Um, and mealtime is a very loud time in the cafeteria. Um, the children are really excited to eat, really excited to play together, hang out. It's a really fun time. So only 5% of kids in the communities we serve will graduate high school apart from Lifesong schools. Uh, this is due to, to a lot of things. Um, just the cycle of poverty is really hard to break. Most of these kids' parents have never received any kind of formal education, or if they have, it's maybe just grade one or grade two. Uh, very, very minimal education. Um, and also, um, there are cost barriers to attending government schools. Um, you still need to buy your own books there, your own uniforms, that kind of thing. And private school is much too expensive for most people. And so that's where LifeSong comes in, where we're providing that education for free to the families. And it's a quality education um, where they can actually succeed and go on to college, university, things that otherwise would not be possible. So this is a photo of our recent graduate class. So as I already mentioned, we also do safe housing for students. Um, and so this is the Harmony Home. This is what probably most people here would be most familiar with. Um, it's just down the road from the Harmony School. I believe it was opened in 2018, and it can house 25 girls. And we've just um, started, or we're about to finish, construction on our second home near Harmony School, um, which can house about another 25, 26 girls. Um, these girls are the most vulnerable, um, the most vulnerable that we've identified within the Harmony School. Um, so these girls come from homes that are very unsafe. Um, definitely confirmed um, abuse happening, unfortunately, um, just very extreme poverty. And so these girls were um, given the chance to come live at the Harmony home. They've got, um, right now, I think one house mother. In the past, it's been two house mothers, who are Zambi and Christians, who are taking care of them. And they still are able to go home, visit their families. Um, they're not forced to stay there. They want to be there, and their families are willing for them to stay there during the school year. And so um, this safe housing is just a way that offers shelter to these girls and also helps them focus on their studies because obviously we know that just because you go to school doesn't mean you can focus on your studies. If you are dealing with a lot of uh, safety concerns at home, if you're not getting food at home, if you're not getting love and support at home for whatever reason, it's going to be really hard to still break that cycle of poverty. So this is one way that we're trying to address that. And so at Garneton School, all the high school students go into boarding. And so because of that, we have 21 boarding homes, including um, the Garneton side of things, with over 250 students being housed there. So um, we also offer vocational training. Um, and so this is an opportunity for students who um, either are not excelling in the quote-unquote academic side of things and who have an interest in learning a trade or working with their hands. This is a way that we are trying to um, meet the needs of some students were dropping out because they just they, they didn't feel like they were book smart per se, but they had really great skills in other areas. And so um, we've got different areas where we do this. There's mechanics, there's like food prep, there's bricklaying, um, so those kind of things. Um, and students can learn those trades in the high school years. Um, and these are really great transferable skills that will hopefully help them get a job once they graduate high school. They also do sewing classes, tailoring, that sort of thing. And so our goal is that they can be gainfully employed within their communities. 
So you also heard on the video that we have five sustainable businesses. Um, and so our five businesses right now are the Lifesong Lodge. So if any of you have been to Zambia, you've probably stayed at the Lifesong Lodge. Um, and it's where we house all of our work teams, but also it's, it's open to anyone. So locals will stay there. People traveling through the area um, will find us on the website and, and book a stay at the Lifesong Lodge. At the Lifesong Lodge is the Roast Cafe. Actually, um, Yasna Delek, she, is, she runs the cafe with her local Zambian staff. They have amazing food. Um, there's also three farms. So there's Twalima Farm, which is uh, growing produce. There's the Berry Farm, which is growing berries. And, um, and then there's Baluba Valley Farm, which is a dairy farm. And they also have a lot of bananas that they harvest. Um, so Baluba Valley Farm, I'm sure um, if Dennis gets the chance to share, he will. But this business is actually in the process of being sold. Um, but it is currently still underneath our, um, our, I don't know what you would call it. We're still running it right now. So the purpose of these sustainable business it, businesses is to generate income. Um, we're trying to provide critical work, especially for caregivers. So a lot of the people we employ, they have families, and it's really hard to provide for their families. And so this is a way that we can um, help, again, break that cycle of poverty so that their like, parents can provide for their own kids because that's really the best way to do orphan care is that to keep those kids that are vulnerable within their families. Um, we're trying to create future jobs for graduates um, and build teams of advocates who offer their skills and expertise. And so just a note that we really try to be very equitable and fair in the way that we pay our employees. And so our employees earn two to three times the average minimum wage in Zambia. And so when somebody makes a donation to Lifesong, 100% of those proceeds go to Zambia. There is no overhead administrative costs. Those are met in other ways. Um, so when people sponsor a child, for example, all of that money is going to sponsor that child. That's not going to the Delics. That's not going to any of like the admin costs overhead. That's all going directly where it's needed. Um, just a little slide that I don't know how to explain. <laughs> And um, so how can you help? Obviously praying that the students would develop that personal relationship with Christ. So again, this is our greatest priority and our greatest prayer for every child we come in contact with and for their families, and that they would hear the gospel even through their kids who come to school. Um, pray that the ministry continues to impact their lives, the staff, the local community members. We want to make a lasting change in the communities we're involved in. And spread the word about what's happening, especially if you've been to Zambia and you have an interest. Tell your coworkers, tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Um, that makes such a huge difference. And we always have a need to sponsor a child. So we're welcoming in, I want to say, I might get this number wrong, but between the two schools, I want to say 60 to 90 kids a year are coming into the school. So we're growing at a fast rate. There's lots of kids on the wait list that want to be there that can't. We don't have room for them. Um, and so... Those are all added children that need sponsorships. Um, and so if you have an interest in sponsoring a child, you can do that through ACCNBC or ACCF. Um, and so just thank you all for coming and listening and for the work that you do here by spreading the word, by sponsoring, by praying. Um, I know I can speak for the Delics that they definitely feel that and for the local staff. Um, I'm happy to answer some questions. I might not know the answers to everything, so I'll just be honest if I don't know, and I will defer to when uh, the Delics are here and you can approach them yourself, but I'm still happy to, to take some questions. Oh, okay. 
starting off with one that I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know. Okay. Approximately. And there are some donations that come through Lifesong US, which is like kind of a separate organization from ACCMBC. So there are some sponsorships that come through that avenue as well, but it is definitely less than what is supported by ACCMBC. Yes. But we definitely have several hundred students. I don't know the exact number, but I know we have several hundred that are not accounted for. So that doesn't mean that those kids don't get fed. It just means that we have to find that money from other places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, I didn't, um, but it is, I believe, $45 a month, and that covers, like, that covers the curriculum at the schools, that covers um, all the safe housing costs are underneath that, all the staff wages are covered underneath that, medical costs, there's a nurse on staff at the school all the time, that covers all of that, like, the meals per day, the uniforms, like, all the costs, like, for the safe homes and for the uh, the school is all covered in your forty five dollar sponsorship per month. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a particular age that you Right. Right. So typically, we're trying to get kids in the preschool age so that they can start young and then continue on throughout the whole year. Now, what's different about preschool is it's like or preschool grade one, you'll find in all the grades, not everyone is the exact same age. Because some kids do come to preschool, but they're older because they didn't have the chance to come to school at the correct age. So not everyone's the same age in the, in the grade that they're in. But basically, we're trying to take kids that are around, I would say, four, five, six, getting, getting them in that younger age group, getting them in the grade that they fit best with, and then they continue on, hopefully, until grade 12. Mm-hmm. Yes. Have they been able to find jobs? Are they still looking? Are they been able to Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I should mention, so Garneton School, which started in 2007, so they've had a couple graduating classes already because they, their school started a couple years before Harmony School. So this was Harmony School's first graduating class. So it was a big milestone for Harmony School, obviously. And so for those kids, I, I can't speak for every single one of them, but I know we have made a partnership with a local university that kids are able to get into if there's a field of study that they're interested in. So I know I'm quite certain there's a couple graduates who have gone on to university. We also have something called the Gap Year Center, which is for kids who are um, trying to decide what they want to do next, and so they can spend a year in the Gap Center, learn, again, some transferable skills, some trades, um, and then that can either bridge them into college or university or hopefully find them a job in that field that they're interested in. So I know we have some students that went on to the Gap Year Center and are spending the year doing that. Mm-hmm. Right. That's so. That's kind of correct. So during holidays and times off of school, they have the option to go home. From my understanding, they don't have to, but most girls want to go home um, because 
you still love your family, generally speaking, right? So it's kind of, um, and also uh, similar to Mexico, I'm sure it's very relational there. You're very tied to your community. Um, and so if all your friends in the girls' home are going home and you haven't seen your family in a little bit, you're probably going to want to go home and visit. So from my understanding, a girl is never forced to go home and visit their family, but generally speaking, on holidays or school breaks, the girls do go home. And that's also a chance then for the house mother to kind of get a little bit of a break, recuperate, and prepare for them coming back for the rest of the school year. Mm -hmm. How well are the kids connected to the church? You talked about some churches there. Right, How yeah. Well Right. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so I know, okay, back in 2017, um, I went to that local church, and there was some kids from the school that were there, but I'm not sure how many regularly go on a Sunday to that church. I know that, like, Pastor Shedrick is always inviting them and saying, come, but um, I'm not totally 100% confident on the number of kids that would go. Definitely not tons of them because the church is very small. So if all the kids went, it wouldn't work very well for that building. But um, yeah, during the week, um, there's those daily devotions every day. So And they do singing, they do prayers, they do Bible studies. So it's kind of like a church functioning within the school. But obviously, we encourage the kids to go to a local congregation on Sundays. Right. Yeah. Great question. Um, so it's too early for us to know that because we just had our first graduating class. In Garneton, I'm not as familiar. Um, I do think some of their students have been in university, but I, I think they're still, it's still so new that no one would be that far along in their career yet. So maybe like five years from now, hopefully. <laughs> um, yeah, so right now our biggest milestone is just getting that graduating class in place and getting kids to university. That's already setting them up for so much more success than otherwise would have been possible. Um, but I know they have very big dreams. So I don't know who all has looked through the sponsorship, like little biographies, but like everyone wants to be like a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse. They've got really big dreams and they're very dedicated to them. So I think some kids are going to make a big change in their communities for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Was there another? Oh, sorry. I'm like, I can't see you. Right. Yeah, so I think, like, it changes over time. Like, there's different needs at different times. So if somebody's interested, I can share from my own experience. When I was interested in going to Zambia, I approached the Delics, and I just said, hey, I'm interested. Do you have a need for me? And we sat down and talked, and they got to know me a little bit better, and that's kind of how I got involved with the mission. Um, and so I wouldn't say there's a, a specific skill set necessarily, um, but what is really important is just, um, and Glenn and Amar touched on this, is, like, people's willingness to serve and being teachable. Um, being willing to get uncomfortable and have a new experience and really be there to support the locals. We're not there to take over the locals because um, that's not helpful in the end. In the end, we could all come back to Canada or the States and those people, that's their home forever. Um, and so we're really there trying to like 
build up, like we said, sustainable businesses um, and, and break those cycles so that it, they can make those changes for themselves. That's the goal, that the mission just continues without us in it eventually. Um, and so if somebody's interested, um, approach the Delics and see if there's a need. Um, it's always changing. I will say some things we don't do, we've had people ask about becoming teachers there and stuff. So far, to my knowledge, that hasn't happened because we do want that to be locals taking those positions. Um, not sure if I answered that question, but I don't know if I have too much more time. Josiah, how many? Oh, okay. Oh, five minutes, okay. All right. Is there anyone else? Uh, that, that she can learn how to do chores. I was like, wow, you're thankful to learn how to do chores. I'm like, they're thankful for the little things. The little six-year-old girl is yeah. singing beautifully, mopping the floor, and, and it's like they got their chores to do. It just, it's just yeah. amazing to see what God has done there. Yeah. And their focus really is not just the humanitarian part. It is on Christ, and that's, that's the beautiful part, I think. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Brief. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, um, like as in how I went or just what I did there or. Yeah, my experience in Zambia was, uh, was very life changing. Um, what I would say that really stood out to me is just how much I learned from the people that I met there and just the beautiful relationships that they have and the way that they care for each other despite being in poverty. I think that. One thing that I can do and I think is very typical for us to do is we boil people down to their situation. So we are just like, these people are so poor. And it's true. They are very poor, but there's so much more to them. And that's what I got to see when I went there is I got to see their talents. I got to see their resiliencies. I got to see their heart for Christ, the way that they care for one another, the way that they're overcoming those challenges in front of them. So when I was there, my job was to kind of overhaul the sponsorship program as far as like I had to collect all the children's information, rewrite their biographies, um, get all their pictures just so that we had more updated information. That was in 2017. There's about 550 students at that time. Now in Harmony, we've got about 850. Um, so that took quite a while. So I was there for a couple months doing that. And then I also was just at the school. And so I got to kind of see just daily life. I got very close with the teachers there, ate lunch with them every day. So it was a very unique experience. Um, got to go into the community um, a couple times, see where kids were living. And so it was very impactful. Um, and I think I learned a lot about myself in the process as well and just kind of had to wrestle with my own um, pride that I brought into missions or my own um, 
I think you just, you kind of face the mirror and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so entitled in my own life back at home. I'm so blessed. What am I doing with what I've been given? Um, I am among the richest in the world statistically, even with what little I feel like I have. And so just coming to terms with that and then thinking like, what can I do now um, where I'm at in my life? How can I serve God faithfully with what I now know from being um, in Zambia? So it was very, it was a very good experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If there's no other questions, I'm, we can end a little bit early. People can get to their next thing. Um, but thank you so much for coming out. If you have other questions, feel free to approach me or wait for the Daleks to come, and they can probably answer those questions a little bit better. Thank you.